Hi, Rob Shank here. Welcome to Shank Talks Bunhofer. And I must admit, I am sort of the bore at the table because somehow I find a way to bring it all around to Dietrich Bunhofer, whom I admire so much. You probably do too, or you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. But I'm sure glad you're here. This is actually the second installment of a talk that I gave recently in Charleston, South Carolina, to a group called Arm in Arm. And they have coalesced around a terrible moment in Charleston's history when a young man violated everything a church stands for when he opened fire on a room full of Bible students, all there studying scripture together, praying together, loving on each other under the direction of their pastor. Nine died. They were young, they were old, they were men, they were women. It included a pastor of that very church, Mother Emmanuel, a venerable black church in Charleston, a leading congregation in that city, really a leading light among churches all across America. And the good that came out of that terrible, terrible moment And that enormous loss uh, was this wonderful group among many others. And the outcome has been a fabulous community coming together to generate all kinds of good things. Uh, But among them, a conversation and uh, action related to common sense gun policy on the state level and on the federal national level. And uh, I see this whole question of the embrace of popular gun culture, as I call it, uh, among Christians in America, and there are plenty of churches that are now arming up. There are pastors armed in the pulpit. And I think this question is a gateway to explore not just this one particularly supremely ethical question of whether it's appropriate to take up arms uh, in the church, uh, but uh, beyond that, there are many, many questions about our treatment of the other. Remember, when a gun is pointed at another person, it implicates all kinds of relational questions, how we relate to our fellow human beings when we carry a weapon into church, ready to kill with it, maybe even someone we know and worship with, because that may be the eventuality that's presented. All that, just to say, I brought all of these questions and more to uh, this gathering in Charleston, and it included a discussion of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And so I offer it to you uh, as part B or part two of uh, a talk that I gave. We divided it into two 20-minute segments, about a 40-minute talk. Uh, If you haven't listened to the first one, go ahead. I don't think you necessarily need to listen to them in sequence, but I hope this is as edifying uh, for you as it seemed to be to the folks in attendance in Charleston. So let's go together to Charleston 
along with our good friend, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you want to know Dietrich Bonhoeffer at his core, you must suffer through <laughs> ethic, his magnum opus, and read between the lines. For me, this was the great eye-opener on Bonhoeffer. Because it's not just the fact that he was a courageous actor, and I think this is the reason most people admire him, because he was not only a man of great principle, but he was an individual of principle who acted on his convictions. And there is a call to action throughout Bonhoeffer's life and work and works, his literary corpus. And there's about 10,000 pages, so don't stop at discipleship. Keep on reading. It's all worth it. And you see this theme on acting. We all know the aphorism about jamming the wheel. And uh, in many ways, it, it does summarize so much of what Bonhoeffer did. But the background to that, the foundation for it, is found in ethics. And the focal point there, as some of you may be familiar, is his idea of the responsible life and the responsible person. And so that applies to each of us in this room. And for me, the gun question in our own culture is a gateway question on Christian ethics. Because if you were trained uh, with a weapon as I was, my, my firearms instructor was United States Marine Corps, uh, top-notch professional, and I remember so well when I first approached him. I, I, I didn't grow up in a gun culture. I grew up in New York State where if you had a gun in your home, it led to one or two uh, conclusions. You were either undercover uh, law enforcement or you were mafia. That was it. Nothing, nothing else. That was the reason you had a gun in your house or in your car, uh, even worse. So I wanted to get fully uh, informed on this subject, and I thought a good place to start is to get trained. So I went to uh, a, a first-class trainer, and he said this to me. Unless you can get to a place where you can use this weapon, if you're going to use it for personal security, you must get to a place where you can use this weapon to kill another human being, no matter who the threat is, no matter what the circumstances, you must be ready to kill and kill in an instant without a second thought, because if you cannot get to that place, you are more a part of the problem than the solution because in your moment of hesitation, that weapon will be taken from you in a violent struggle, it will be used to kill you, and then it will go on to kill many others. So you become the problem. So you have to first assure me that when you take this weapon on your body, you are ready, willing, able to kill in a nanosecond. That was a very hard 
exercise for me to go through, but I finally felt that I got there for the most part. And once I did, we began our training. Anytime that someone carries, whether concealed or open, he or she is prepared to kill another human being. This to me is a supreme moral and ethical question that must be settled, not just in the heart and mind of the individual, but in the community that he or she inhabits. And now, let's go to this. Because the president of Garrison Grip, the manufacturer of the gun Bible, as I call it, has told, uh, has said now that one of the reasons their sales are going through the roof is because so many churches are now ordering these Bibles by the case. And the question is, what are they doing with them? Selling them in the church bookstore? Giving them to their deacons and ushers? Uh, maybe to their volunteer security force. And I have many colleagues and friends, pastors all, who are now recruiting members who conceal carry to bring their weapons to church and prepare themselves to defend the flock uh, when there is a threat. And frankly, I think their motivation for that is noble. They care deeply about their people. They want them to be protected. There's a range of emotions connected to it, everything from personal offense. How dare you come into my church and slaughter my people? I'll teach you a lesson. We heard this from Jerry Falwell Jr. at Liberty University, where I have many friends and colleagues. Uh, and uh, he stood up and said, if they ever come here, we'll teach them a lesson. And of course, as you know, they've now constructed and installed one of the most sophisticated firing ranges uh, anywhere it, you can find in the country to train all of their students free of charge uh, to, uh, to be able to wield their weapon in a way that they could uh, fend off, even as a small army, uh, any kind of threat to the campus. So is it always malicious? I don't think so. I think there are some really well-intentioned people, including the volunteers who come to church, but then the question is, have we prepared those people, those volunteers, to shoot, to kill in the house of God? Maybe someone they know in the congregation. Have we morally, ethically, emotionally, even spiritually prepared those people to kill an eight-year-old child standing behind the assailant when the caliber bullet they use passes through the body of the attacker and strikes and kills the child? Have we prepared ourselves as a community for this 
potential eventuality? These are the questions I think pastors must struggle with now. Remember one of the things Bonhoeffer reminded us of in his prison years was how important it is for the church to speak early and not wait until it is too late. So while we have the luxury of grappling with this very thorny, difficult, problematic, conflictual problem, let's do it. While we have the luxury of doing it away from the gunfire, the blood, and the funerals. Let's do it now. And let's do it generously. I struggle. I meet folks all over the country who, you know, will get up and they'll tell me very passionately how much they believe in our Second Amendment constitutional right to uh, bear arms. And that uh, I shouldn't judge them. And I try not to. I really try not to judge human hearts. Beware, I mean, let's remember, those of us who are Christians and listen to the gospel must remember that with what measure we judge, it will be measured against us. So we have to be careful and generously give the benefit of the doubt and listen deeply. Why? What is the reason that people feel they need to arm themselves in the grocery store by the nightstand and of particular interest to me? Because this is the way I treat the problem with coming from the platform of uh, the Bonhoeffer Institute. My major concern is for religious communities for the people of God. Do you mind if I use a little evangelical parlance today? <laughs> Pardon my evangelical speech. But God's people, the family of God, whatever expression that is for you, but for me, it's Christian. People who claim to follow Jesus Christ as the model, and of course that's often where I go, is the model of Christ on this question, of use of lethal force, particularly very lethal force, like an AR-15. And in my community, of course, I have voices. I, uh, one colleague I know well who preached a sermon saying when Christ returns, he will most certainly be brandishing an AR-15 because that's the sword uh, of our day. Well, that's my burden, not yours. Or unless you're an evangelical, then please come and help me. I need your help. But in your community and in your situation, you will face different questions about this. And as I'm going to now speak to my own here, 
uh, to the pastors in the room. And remember, Dietrich Bonhoeffer was first Pastor Bonhoeffer or Pfarrer Bonhoeffer. That's how he was known. And when you look at the plaques memorializing him, particularly in Germany, he will always be called either pastor or father. And uh, that was his identity. And he had a great love as a shepherd of souls. Uh, and as you know, of course, I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. As uh, the leader of an underground seminary, one of his principal uh, duties was the formation of pastors, particularly late, very late, when he was supervising the collective pastorates, the underground pastorates, where he had to train outside of the seminary. And uh, so he was a pastor. And when you read him, you read him as a pastor, and he had great pastoral wisdom. Even in the extreme situation that he was in, and if anything defined in extremis, it was the time and circumstance that Bonhoeffer lived in. And this is where often when I'm hit with this, as you probably have been, but didn't Dietrich Bonhoeffer join the plot to assassinate Adolf Hitler? That doesn't sound too anti-gun to me. And I say, well, let's consider the circumstances. Do they look anything like our own? In extremis, all norms are suspended, as Bonhoeffer would clearly state in his ethics. But here's a very telling moment, I think, that may be helpful to the pastors in this room who are saying, yeah, but you don't know, you know, I'd love to take on this hot subject in the pulpit, but if I do, I'm going to send all my gun owners packing or, you know, depending on who you are, where you are, what you are, you know, either the Republicans are going to flee or the Democrats or they're going to start a food fight right there in front of you in the pews. And you don't want that. And of course you don't. You are a pastor. Your job is to bring unity and foster love and cooperation and peace among your people. Of course not. And even Bonhoeffer understands this. As outspoken as he was, as courageous as he was, as much, as much of a risk taker as he was. But do you remember this? One little episode in Bonhoeffer's life, Eberhard Bethke, his uh, ultimate biographer, but his uh, very close friend and confidant who went through all the uh, war years with him, recorded this moment in, uh, in Bonhoeffer's life shortly after he had returned from safe harbor in the United States back to Germany to suffer with his people. You recall this when he said, what right will I have to help them in the aftermath of the war if I don't suffer with them during the war? And he left the safety of New York where he had his fellowship at Union Seminary, returned to Germany that would set him on the course to martyrdom. And there came a an afternoon 
When Bonhoeffer and Beitka were relaxing in an open-air cafe when suddenly a special announcement came over the loudspeaker, France has surrendered, Beitka wrote. And here's Beitka's words. The people around the tables could hardly contain themselves. They jumped up and some even climbed on the chairs. With outstretched arms, they sang, make America great again. No, no, they didn't. Just, I'm sorry, just a little political humor there. Relax, everybody. I'm, I'm neither Republican nor Democrat. I'm, I'm what I call a Deuteronomy 17. You know, if you look there, you're going to see the king was commanded not to turn to his right or to his left, and that means he was an independent. So anyway, so am I, but let's move on. So they could hardly contain themselves, and with outstretched arms, they sang Deutschland, Deutschland, über alles. And the Horst Vessel song, we had stood up to. Bonhoeffer raised his arm in the regulation Hitler salute while I stood there dazed. Raise your arm, are you crazy? He whispered to me, we shall have to run risks for very different things now, but not for the salute. There are things worth risking congregational peace and harmony over and things that are not worth risking those things over. There are things worth risking your pastoral future over. And there are things that are not. And there are things worth risking your personal security over. And there are things that are not. And Bonhoeffer reminds us of that over and over again. When he gets to the question of the responsible man or woman, it becomes a singular question. Not what is the latest movement I should be part of. Not what do people expect of me. Not what should I do and what are the consequences. But one question. What is the will of God for me in this moment of time? Implying, of course, that we must answer it. And obey it. That may look very different for you than it does from the pastor across town. As a layperson, it may look very different for you than it looks to the lay leader of a different congregation somewhere else. We will all act according to our own conscience as it is enlightened by the will of God for each of us in that moment of time. And this is why we dare not say, well, Bonhoeffer gave us one solution to political problems. He would be scandalized for anyone to mimic what he did in his time and in his place because he would tell you there will never be another 1933 Germany, there will never be another Adolf Hitler, and there will never be another Nazi party, and there will never be another world war like this one. This is a unique time, and a unique place, and a unique moment, and God's will for me is unique in this time, and so it will be for you even on this question. Now, that's not to say that I hope that the will of God for you is to ignore the problem. <laughs> 
<laughs> I hope not. Remember, Proverbs tells us if it's in the power of your hand to do good, then do it, period. If it's in your power to do it, then by all means do it. And there are a number of things you can do. I would suggest that one of the first things you can do is enlighten your people on this question. This is not about whether you should own a gun or not own a gun, whether we should restrict gun ownership or not restrict gun ownership, whether it should be concealed carry or constitutional carry or licensed or unlicensed and all the rest. That's a lot of minutia. The big question is, what is the will of God for us in this moment? Individually, as a community, as part of a state, a nation, a world. How do we meet this problem? And that's why we designed the Bible study that Pat uh, held up. It's available online, free of charge, won't cost you anything, except a little discomfort, <laughs> one way or the other. And listening to all the voices that weigh in, it's an inductive Bible study, it's very safe. Let's just call it pastoral safe. And uh, I think you can talk to some folks who have used it around here. With that, I'm going to conclude my remarks and leave you with that one question. What is the will of God for you in this moment of time? And how will you respond to it? Thank you.